All right, we're going through an internal statement that we want to speak among ourselves as we walk in this life together, and that is we want to help broken people to treasure Jesus. Um, and I'm, I'm in the midst of talking about the brokenness and how we treasure Jesus, and I've been in Psalm 51 for, I think this is my fourth or fifth week, and we've got one more week to go after this, but um, it's about a situation in David's life where he is repenting the background. Very quickly, David was at the height of his power. He was the king. He was in control. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He had it all together. And he had just slowly slipped away from the worship of the living God. And so he goes out. He sees a beautiful woman. He takes her in, commits adultery. She conceives. He calls her husband home from the battlefield. And her husband doesn't cooperate, so he has to be sent back. And he has her husband killed, basically in battle with a group of other valiant, brave men. And then he covers it up and says, I'm taking this woman in named Bathsheba as my wife. And so David's committed adultery. He's committed murders, plural. He has coveted, he's lied, he's deceived, and he is miserable. And in the midst of all this misery... David has a guy come into court and say, David, you sinned against God. You have dismissed or you have abrogated the word of God in your life. And you're the man, you're guilty. And this is David's psalm of repentance, where he just cries out from the depth of his soul, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out all my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. And then he talks about the fact that he sinned against God and, it, and that he, he knows he's a sinner. Sin is always before him. And he makes this really uh, uh, amazing statement. He says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And what he means by that is hyssop was a branch that in the Old Testament they would dip in the blood of the lamb that had been sacrificed for sin. And they would sprinkle the blood on the people to symbolize the forgiveness and the cleansing. It's the same branch that was dipped in the blood of the lamb, the first Passover lamb in Exodus when the door was put on the top and the side of the door frames and the angel of death went by. And what David is saying is, the only way I can approach you, almighty, holy, living Jehovah God, is by the sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system prefigured or foreshadowed the coming of Jesus on the cross. Christ is referred to several times in his ministry and by the apostles as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the book of Hebrews tells us that by this one sacrifice for sin, Jesus has forever filled the Old Testament sacrificial system. So David is looking forward dimly to the coming of Messiah King that's represented by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And, and then he says this, after he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. In the midst of my pain, in the midst of my, my, my murderous intent, in the midst of my uh, adultery, 
Let me hear joy and gladness because my sins are forgiven. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Let, let the bones that you have broken because you've convicted me of sin, speaking metaphorically, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm undone, I'm disjointed. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And based upon that, based upon the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, based upon the forgiving nature of God, because our sins are covered by the work of the Lamb of God. He says this, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create means to, to, to bring, it, bring something out of a block of marble or to fashion as a potter would a lump of clay. You create, you've got to do it, Lord. You've got to give me new eyes and a new ears and a new heart and new inclination. And I quoted a guy named Augustine, one of the great teachers of the church, who said, uh, command what you will and give what you command. In other words, Lord, command it, but as you command it, you've got to give me the inclination and the power to walk in the freedom that comes in knowing Jesus. So he has created me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew an unwavering spirit within me. David is saying, I remember what it was like to be more wholehearted as a young boy fighting Goliath. I remember what it was like to be more wholehearted before God, before my eyes were clouded and my affections were miss, missed up as, as, as saw chase me in the wilderness. So restore to me or, or bring me this unwavering spirit. And then he says this. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And I said last week as we covered this verse that, that believers can never say, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because if you've trusted Christ by faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, if you've done that, you have received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to us, key word, irrevocably, cannot be taken away. But I said last week, Ephesians 4, we can grieve the Spirit of God. So our prayer is, Lord, don't let me grieve your Spirit through disobedience or inattention or hard-heartedness and limit my joy and my peace and my usefulness in your kingdom. And then we come to the, to the little part of the verse I want to deal with today. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Restore means, Lord, do it again. Or bring me back. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Um, so I'm going to give you, this is my overview this morning, next whatever time we have. I want to try to, to show you from the scripture that the living God and his triune mercy is gloriously good and he's for us. He is a happy God and he is for us. And then I want to show you the way David as I walk through Psalm 51, lost the joy of the Lord and how we can do it too. So, so first of all, God is gloriously for us. In Psalm 4, there's a statement made that goes like this. Verse 6 says that there are many who say, who will show us some good? That means beneficial joy or happiness. Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. That's his prayer. Then this is his commentary. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. In other words, 
He says, Lord, show us some good. Show us light from your face. Then he says this, as you do that, you put more joy in my heart as I trust you to meet my needs and sustain me. You put more joy in my heart than people outside of knowing you have when their stock portfolio jumps 100% and their stock shares are split 13 times in one year. You, you give me more joy than that. You put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me to lie down and dwell and sleep in safety and peace. So God is for us. Larger catechism, question one. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to what? Enjoy him forever. Glorify God in part by by enjoying him forever because we know God is most glorified in us when we are truly satisfied and happy in him. So that, that, that's who God's called us, what he's called us to be. Here's a quote from a guy named Jonathan Edwards. One of my heroes died in 1758. Um, he preached a sermon as a very young man. And this is what he said. I want you to hear this. This is, this is kind of mind-boggling. You get hold of this, you go, I'm not sure. So you go, I'm not, agree. I'm not sure I agree with that. And that's okay. I want to convince you. God created man for this very end, that he might communicate happiness to him. So, oh, I don't know about that. God created man for this very end, that he might communicate happiness to him. C.S. Lewis, Henry Christianity, made this comment. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gas or petrol. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. He goes on and says that that's why it's silly to ask God to make you happy apart from the knowledge of him because he's, he's made us to, to be fulfilled, and joyful, happy in the Lord. Once again, Jonathan Edwards. God created man for this very end that he might be or communicate happiness to him. Let me read a couple of verses. This is Deuteronomy 10. The background is that the children of Israel have, have worshipped the golden calf. Uh, they've been judged. And God says, I'm going to cut out two more stones because Moses shattered the stones when he threw it down. And I'm going to give the Ten Commandments again. And this is what he says. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Hear that? For your good. For your well-being, for your happiness. Later, in Jeremiah chapter uh, 32, the Lord uh, says this. This is incredible. 
Starting in verse 37, I will make them dwell in safety and they, may, they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Man, I love that. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of the Lord in their hearts, the worship, true worship of God, that they may not turn from me. I'm going to work in their hearts and they may, that they, I'm going to do them good and their children after them. God is gloriously for us. Here's the way I think it works. So we see the glory of the, of, of, of the cross, the goodness of the Lord in the cross. And as we see that and understand that, we taste, experience. Another word for taste is you experience the goodness of the Lord, and then you walk in joy. You see the glory of the cross, you taste it, and then you walk in the joy of the Lord. So I, I look at that and I say to you, I say to me, how is your joy, your happiness? We heard in this video that we came in the room and they were just happy people. I mean, you don't have to work it up. I mean, are you happy because you understand the goodness of the cross, the forgiveness of sin, the present day ministry of the Holy Spirit, the hope of heaven? Are you tasting that? And are you walking in joy? So, for example, Isaiah 61 is a passage. I'm, I'm reading a lot of verses I know, but just hang in there. Isaiah 61 is a passage that Jesus quotes in the Gospels and says, this passage is fulfilled in me. So this is about Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, see broken people, brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and, and to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness. Did you hear that? The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. You see, Jesus says, I'm going to come, I'm going to establish my kingdom, and I'm going to make a people who are filled with the oil of gladness, a planting of the Lord as oaks of righteousness. And I read that and I say, how's your joy? How's your happiness? So I want to look at David's life from this psalm and other places and mention four ways that David forfeited the joy of his salvation in, in such a fashion that David has to cry out now, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do it again, Lord. I'm not where I used to be. I'm in this pit of despair that I've dug for myself. So restore it. Four ways he lost his joy. Number one, David slowly and maybe imperceptibly departed from the Lord. Now, imperceptibly means to be so gradual that it's hard to really recognize the gradual movement. So he imperceptibly was subtle. It was a gradual shift. 
We believe that Psalm 103 was written probably after Psalm 51. So Psalm 103 is a community or a call to community praise and individual praise. But this is what it says, one of my favorite Psalms. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not any of his benefits. And then he mentions five off the bat. He forgives all your sins. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit, pit of despair, pit you've dug and fallen into. He, 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 he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The eagle represents a, a, a creature of virility and strength. So he says, says, says forget none of his benefits. Remember, 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 forgiven your sins, heals your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and tender mercy. He renews your years with good things so, so, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles, satisfies you with good things. Now, do you see that? Do you see that? Do you remember? Do you remember and rehearse the goodness of the Lord? Do you stop and say, you know, I, yeah. it's in our home, we have a habit, when we're out now, of praying before the meal. And I, sometimes I'm, I say, Lord, thank you for this food and the mercies of Christ. Amen. I don't have long prayers on because I like to eat. Okay. But so I'm always saying, am I really Am I serious about saying thank you? Or is it just wrote? No. Am I a thankful person? Do I stop and say, man, the Lord has been, he's forgiven my sin. He's, he heals my diseases. He carries me along until it's time to go home. He has redeemed my life from pits, pits, various pits. He crowns, he satisfies my ears with good things. It's interesting. We have a tendency to just forget. We do. We just have a tendency to forget. So I think of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Just remember. I think of the Lord's Supper last week. Jesus says, do this as you remember me. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, this is the central focus of the Christian faith. The coming of Jesus, his death on the cross for our sin. Remember. But today, I mean, June the 6th, God of Thinking all week, June 6, 1944, D-Day. I, I need to remember and be glad that, that there are people who, I mean, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds that, that on this day in 1944 stormed the beaches of Normandy and died to overthrow a murderous regime called the Nazis. And so as, as an American, I need to remember and be glad for the benefits of this country, but much more so as a child of God, I need to remember. But quite honestly, we just forget, and it's imperceptible sometimes. It's just a gradual move, 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 move. So when I was a child, and my kids played a game called one, two, three, red light. You know, you stand here and you close your eyes, one, two, three, red light, and you turn and you see people trying to touch you, and, and they, they'll go and then they'll freeze. And so, but the movement is so quick that it's almost imperceptible. So I think I saw you move, go to the back. I think I saw you move. See, that, that, that's, what he's doing. That, that, that's what happened in David's life. He just gradually moved. Do you remember? Do you remember and rehearse with people and are you glad for the goodness of the Lord? 
So we had a, every year we have a global impact conference and we had a speaker years ago named Don Cameron Diener. Nice guy, been a missionary for 40 years. He was really an older guy, retired years ago. Anyway, he spent the weekend with him. He was just, he, he loved people, loved the Lord, talked about his wife and his kids and his grandkids and just enjoyed life. And so I spent the weekend with him. And at the end of the weekend, I said, Don, let me ask you a question. When I get to be older, like you, I want to be like you. What is it that you have done to keep your joy and the Lord strong, and your affection for your wife strong, and your love for people strong. And he said, Buster, no one's ever, ever asked me that. So let me think about it. So he sat there for about 15 seconds. And then he said, hmm. He said, we never miss Sunday school and church on the Lord's day. And I went, that's it. I wanted something like, you know, we're on a pilgrimage to the Himalaya Mountains and we took a burrow up to the top and we rubbed a magic stone and hit it three times and said whatever we said. No, he said it was just, it's just the consistency of worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day. And I thought, there's a brilliance in that answer. Do, do, do you remember the Lord? And for, for the sake of your joy, do you remember? See, I don't believe David got up on a particular beautiful spring morning in Jerusalem and, and had his coffee and then said, you know, I'm going to go out today and I'm going to find a beautiful, drop-dead gorgeous woman who's married to a warrior and I'm going to seduce her and I'm going to hope that she gets with child and I'm going to have her husband killed and I'm going to cover up that you know, murder with killing a group of other valiant men and I'm going to lie and I'm going to covet and I'm going to deceive everybody and I'm going to be miserable. He didn't do it. He just slipped and he slipped and he slipped and he slipped. And quite frankly, it happens to us. So the first thing he did is that he slowly, imperceptibly, just gradually moved. The second thing he did is he sought happiness and other things as he believed his press clippings. Now, David had a whole room full of, you know, citizen of the year, greatest king in the history of Israel plaque, uh, a trophy that said, you know, most powerful warrior. He, and then he had, you know, he had Goliath's armor on his wall that he had killed. And he had, he had the, the staff that he used as a shepherd boy and the slingshot that he used to kill Goliath encased in like a glass, you know, case. He had it all. And he started to believe his press clippings. And we live in an age, brothers and sisters, of affirmation. We live in an age where we're supposed to go around and pull our shoulder out of joint and have to pat ourselves on the back. And it's to our destruction. I mentioned a quote by a guy named H. Richard Niebuhr from the 1950s when he was lamenting the church of the 1950s in America. And he says, we live in an age when a God without wrath is bringing a people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without the cross. In other words, if you don't get sin, and you don't get the fact that sin should be judged, you'll never get the cross. So David started believing his press clippings, his likes on his personal page. 
listen to this, on your very best day, the very best hour of your very best day, you need the blood of Christ to cover your sins. You do. I love what the old Puritan said, that when you understand the depth of your sin, even your tears of repentance need to be covered by the blood of Christ. We don't have it together. We need the grace of Christ every day. We need to say in our minds every day, Jesus, you are the vine. I'm a little twig branch. If I don't abide in you, I can't pull this off. You see, David in 1 Samuel 24, there's this story. It's kind of, it's kind of a weird story, but it's also a powerful story. 1 Samuel 24 tells us that David was being pursued by King Saul because King Saul was told that David would be the new king. And Saul said, I've got to kill David so that my son and grandson will be the king in the future. And so Saul hated David, really his son-in-law. He tried to pin him to the wall with a spear and didn't succeed. And so he's hunting David all over the mountains outside of Jerusalem, trying to find him and put him to death. And, and it says here in 1 Samuel 24 that Saul had gone out with 3,000 first-class warriors. I mean, like U.S., like Navy SEALs or Green Beret guys. And, and he had 3,000 of those guys, and they're going throughout the mountains trying to find David and kill him. And we know that David has a group of 400 to 600 guys who kind of were hanging out with him. There were people that were dissatisfied with life, and they were people who had great debt to pay off, and they were just kind of, most of them were just disreputable people. I mean, David had a group of losers, in many ways, hanging out with him. Saul has the Navy SEALs. And so they're going throughout trying to find him. And so, so David is, is hiding from Saul and, and David is in a cave hiding and Saul comes close by and Saul says, I don't want to be offensive to you, but Saul says, says I've got to use the bathroom. And there's, there's no welcome station on this particular you know, path outside Jerusalem. And so he, you either go behind a bush or you go in a cave. And so Saul goes into a cave to use the bathroom. In the cave, in the back of the cave, David's hiding with five or four or five of his buddies. And so Saul goes in there and, and they kind of peep around, they hear some noise and they see King Saul in the cave. And so they punch David and says, it's Saul. You just, you're the king. Just go there, just slit his throat and he's over. I mean, nobody's going to... Blame me. I mean, he's been hunting you for months and years. I mean, come on. David said, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. So they peep around the corner. Saul has taken off his robe and he's using the bathroom. But David sleeps, slips up and he takes the robe and he cuts it off. Cuts off and he slips back. Saul gets up, puts his robe on, goes out. David slips out of the cave, stands on top of the hill. And he says, oh, great king. So I turns around and says, David, is that you, David? Yes, it is. He said, God forbid that I should stretch out my hand against God's chosen person. And he bows down. And then he holds up the piece of fabric. <laughs> he says, I've got this. This is part of your robe. And Saul goes, looks down and goes, good grief. Good grief. He cut, I mean, he cut That's my robe. And this is what David says. And this is, I just go, wow. He says this, verse 14. He says, my hand shall never be against you. After whom though has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue a dead dog? 
after a flea? So David steps back and says, why are you chasing me, great king? I am a dead dog. I'm a flea. I'm just, I'm a nobody. And yet you've got 3,000 crack troops trying to find me. Why? And I thought, you know, David, so David says of himself, the Lord is great. I, what am I? I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a dead dog. And in saying that, there's power, there's anointing, there's joy, and there's a right sense of believing. If you had gone to time machine and gone forward to 2 Samuel 11, where David is at the height of his power, he's got a kingdom, he's got an army, he's got wealth, and he's not in the field where he should have been, and he sees a woman and he takes her just because he wants her. And he said, David, have you forgotten that you are a dead dog and a flea who needs the grace of God. David would have said, how dare you call me a dead dog? Look at all this. I am the king. I've acquired wealth and knowledge and I'm a musician and I'm adored by the people. And I'm, I'm at the height of my power. I am the king. He forgot. He started believing his press reports. Self-sufficiency, listen to me, kills. Jesus gives life. One, I've got a, I love reading kids' stories to my grandkids. One of my favorite stories is The Little Engine That Could. But my favorite children's story, theologically, is The Emperor's New Clothes. You guys know that story? Raise your hand if you know that story. Okay. So here's the story there's an emperor who's wealthy who's powerful, and he commissions these tailors to make the most ornate robes that have ever been made. And they scramble, how can we ever do this? And so they come in one day and they play to the vanity of the king. And they say, here, king, are the clothes. And the king goes, well, I don't see any clothes. But all the sycophants around him say, oh, your majesty, we've never seen clothes that pretty. I mean, these, these clothes are incredible. And so the king says, yes, they are. And so he puts on his clothes and he parades around in them with nothing but his you know, undergarments on and then he goes out and he gets in a carriage and he has a parade and he gets out and he's, everybody says oh the emperor's new clothes because they're just a bunch of sycophants or parasites saying what they want what he wants to hear and finally a little boy says but mama the king has no clothes on and the whole charade just goes up in smoke and I thought in, in my life I need people who say to me you can't dress yourself in your own clothes. It's got to be the righteousness of Jesus. Let me say this. this so, it is a blessing from the Father to at times be miserable over our sin. Because it shows us that we need something outside of ourselves. I'm just looking over here. There's a couple of young married couples got married in the last two or three weeks. Others are getting married this week, the next week, two weeks from now. And I, I, I love being married. I've been married 41 years to a really wonderful woman. And I've got to tell you that every marriage, though, goes through a couple of days here, maybe longer, where you just don't click. And sometimes I, I sit back and say, I don't see any sin, but we're just not on the same page. I mean, she says potato, I say potato. She says tomato, I say tomato. I mean, we just, and, and, and some, sometimes I just come for the Lord and say, Lord, I really need grace 
to be the husband you've called me to be. I, mean, I, I can't pull this off. And it's good for my soul. It's good for my soul when I, when I, I have to struggle with purity. It's good for my soul. God, I need grace. It's good for my soul when occasionally, I, when you're raising children, you go, minor adult children are doing really good now, but I, when, you, when you're raising kids, sometimes you say, I don't have a clue. You know? And it's, it's good for your soul. Because you say, Lord, unless you break in and teach me, it's not going to happen. It's good. Sometimes a dear relationship with a friend just kind of seems to go sideways for a while. And you go, I don't know what's going on, but I, I need, I can't do this without the grace of Christ. I'm telling you, it's good for your soul to be upended occasionally. Uh, now, one reason I say that is from Romans chapter 7. Paul has just been saying the good things I want to do, I don't do. And then he says this. So I, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So I really delight in the things of God. But... I see in my daily actions or my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Then he says, wretched man that I am. In other words, I'm undone. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It says, Jesus can deliver me. I run to Jesus. Next chapter, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. But, but, but Paul says, you know, I look at myself, I look at my situation, and I say, wretched man that I am. One of the great mercies of God is he awakens his people to see their sin and their need for a Savior in an ongoing fashion. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. I got two more points. So I'm going to do it in about three minutes. Hang in there. Number three. One way David blew it is that he became very wise in his own eyes. If you want to lose your joy, then you make yourself the alpha and the omega of decision making instead of brothers and sisters in Christ and the word of God. And there's a passage in Proverbs, Proverbs 26, that says this. Verse 12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. <laughs> pretty obvious, pretty plain. There's more hope for a fool than for him. Verse 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Proverbs 3, trust the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You don't want healing and refreshment? Then run here. Run here. David became wise in his own eyes. The fourth thing he did is this. He gradually accepted the revulsive nature of sin and the destructive nature of sin became part of his landscape. He didn't hate sin. I want to hate sin. I want you to hate sin. I often think about a little poem by Alexander Pope called The Essay on Man that says, Vice is a monster of such frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen. 
yet seen too oft, we grow accustomed to its face. First we endure, then we pity, then we embrace. I'm talking about that next week in part because of Pride Month and how that unfolds for, the, for us. But I mean, it, it's, it, it just happens. It's just a, a chip at the base. And, and David gradually came to the place of pitying, enduring, and embracing. I just ask you this morning, do you hate sin? I ask myself, do I really hate sin? I think of the little verse in Jude in the New Testament that says that they, they, they hate <clears throat> the clothing that's been stained by sinful flesh. It's to snatch people from the fire as you hate the clothing stained by sinful flesh. Do I, do I really see the degrading, horrific nature of sin? Or do I just kind of put up with it, endure it, and maybe embrace it? Thinking about Hebrews, which is in the New Testament talking about the glory of Christ and what he's done and talking about the eternal nature of Jesus. And it says this, the Father says of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. It's verse 9 of chapter 1. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Oh, wow. Talking about Jesus. It says you, you, have, you, have, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. I thought, do I hate gossip? Do I hate um, lust? Do I hate pride? Do I hate uh, lethargy? Do I hate, I mean, some of these things, of course we say, oh, of course we hate David's adultery and his murder. Yeah, sure. But how about us? Do, do I find myself gradually okay with certain sins that are dishonoring to God? So one of my favorite, I think two or three favorite Shakespeare plays is a play called Henry V. The background to Henry V is Shakespeare's writing this two centuries after something called the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. 1415, the British have gone into France and they're fighting the French and they're, they're racked with dysentery. No, this is, they're racked with dysentery. They're outnumbered six to one. The French are pushing them into the sea. And so the British in France are making a last stand. And really at that point, they thought this is a valiant last stand, but it's kind of a hopeless cause. And, and, and so in, in a wild turn of events, the British wipe out the French because of the long bowmen. Just pew, pew. And they just, they wipe them out. They're outnumbered six to one and they win an incredible victory in 1450. Two centuries later, Shakespeare's writing the play called Henry V and he, he has the king, Henry V, in the play to jump up on a stump and to give the most impassioned speech that you'll ever hear. I mean, you should... Football coaches should adapt this for the, a pregame speech or something. It is so good. And he, he goes something like this. He says, he says, you know, he says, today we're going to fight and we're going to win a glorious victory. And years from now, when your grandchildren or neighbors see your arms and the scars on your arm from this battle, and they say, where do they come from? You say, ah, oh, 
St. Crispin's Day. Today was the final St. Crispin's Day. Uh, on on St. Crispin's Day, I fought with Henry V and Gloucester and Exeter and whatever, these, these, these guys, and we won a great victory. And man, it's, it just gets you fired up. But then this is what Henry V says in Shakespeare's play, and I love this. He says, if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. I love that. If it was a sin to covet honor for England and for my men, I'm the most offending soul alive. And I look at this and I thought, you know, turn it around here. If it's, if it's a sin to covet joy, I want to be the most I'm going to be the most egregiously sinful guy around. I covet joy. I covet happiness. I covet the peace and the joy and the usefulness that comes when you know Jesus and you live in such a way that you speak of Christ to other people because of the overflow of what you're experiencing. That's what I want for you and me. And so I come to this and I say, David, David is pleading to get out of the pit that he's dug for himself. Don't go there. Don't go there. There's, there. There are people here today that you slipped here, you slipped here. Some have slipped way over here. Don't go. Go back. Cry out with David. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cry out with David. You know, Almighty God, let me not grieve your Holy Spirit. Cry out with David. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, the happiness. I want that. For you, for me, for I want, I want that for us. As we represent Christ to our community, our culture, our families. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, the, the thank you for this self-revealing, self-effacing song that's recorded for us, where a guy is just repenting and pleading for mercy on the basis of the Lamb of God. We do the same thing. And as we plead for that, we ask, create in us a clean heart, a non-complaining heart, a thankful heart. And God, you've got, to, you've got to do it. Give us the power to live that way. We plead, Lord, don't let us grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we plead, restore again and again, day after day, the joy of our salvation, the joy of the forgiveness of sins, the joy of knowing our adoption through the cross, the joy of knowing that if we die, we go into the presence of God. The joy of knowing that there's a good shepherd who watches over us and who calls us by name and leads us out and goes before us and surrounds us. The joy of that. So uh, do that in us, Lord. I pray we'd just be happy people, thankful people, and rejoice in the goodness of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.